as we continue our study of uh, church history, we, uh, for the most part, finished up the uh, uh, the idea or the uh, the use of the confessional in the Catholic Church. And what we began to look at, of course, was uh, the idea that Paul foretold of a falling away, and then we began to look at uh, some of the things that he said would happen. Again, pointing toward that Gnosticism, but as time continued on, that falling away and that Gnosticism manifest itself into what we know as the Catholic Church. Now, he wasn't specifically pointing to the Catholic Church, but that's the result of uh, that falling away. So we talked about some of the different doctrines that they replaced with God's laws, the idea of transubstantiation, taking the emblems of the Lord's Supper, and then they become the actual body and blood of, of Jesus. Then we talked about this idea of the confessional and uh, <clears throat> coming in and and confessing your sins to an individual so that individual can absolve you from sin. And uh, before we move on to this next one, I want to just take a moment here and talk a little bit about that process that would happen. Uh, <clears throat> of course, over time, the idea of the confessional evolved into what we know it uh, as today, it began with simply ostracizing the those who were seeking forgiveness outside of the the group of the quote faithful, and they would uh, be in an area apart from them, and they would be mourning and begging for forgiveness and praying, and then ultimately the priest would go over and absolve them of their sins. In essence, that's that's the process that happened. Well, as it evolved and it became what we what we now understand and are familiar with when it comes to the confessional, you go in a little box and you sit on a stool and you're talking through a, a veil of some sort uh, to a priest. Now, <clears throat> what happens is the penitent uh, beginning would kneel beside the priest or again, now they come in and sit down and they make a statement uh while making the sign of the cross in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, Amen. Then with their lips close to the priest in a whisper voice, uh, they make a statement saying, Pray, Father, give me your blessings, I have sinned. And then they repeat this statement, I confess to Almighty God to blessed Mary, ever virgin, well, that doesn't make sense, does it? Uh, following Christ's birth, he had several half-siblings. She's not the eternal virgin or ever virgin. Then it goes on to say, To bless Michael, the archangel, to bless John the Baptist, to the holy apostle Peter and Paul, and to you, Father, that I have sinned exceedingly in thought, word, and deed through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. And then they begin to uh, relay all manner of thoughts or actions to this individual on the other side of the curtain, no matter how secret the sin or whatever it may, uh, may be. And when we get into the confessional, and you have this priest, this so-called father, 
their their father in no sense of the word because they're bachelors. Okay, uh, wives, children, husbands, all all people are violated in this process. And then the priest will tell them, uh, I absolve you from your sin. Now that just doesn't make much sense, does it? <clears throat> Only God can forgive sin in this life. And so with that, let's move on from the confessional. Any, any comments or, or thoughts? Let's look at this idea of indulgences. Uh, I don't know that <clears throat> indulgences are necessarily uh, that prominent in the thinking of people in today's world, but they were incorporated uh, within the early Catholic Church. To make this absolution effective, remember, they go into the the confessional, they, they uh, reveal all of their intimate thoughts and secrets or whatever the case may be. And so to make this absolution effective, uh, the sacrament of confession, and that's what they call it, the sacrament of confession, is comprised of uh, penances by which the wrongs done are paid. Okay? You can't simply... Come with a penitent heart, confessing your sin to God, publicly if necessary, and ask God to forgive you. You have to pay penance in some form, okay? Whether that's uh, some kind of physical pain inflicted in this life, or whether it is through giving money, or whatever the case may be. Now, the originally, the amount of... Uh, Satisfaction required to have a sin forgiven was measured by the time during which the state of penance should last. In, in other words, you, you do a particular sin, you have to be engaged in this penance for a period of time. And I think maybe we mentioned, uh, as we were talking about the confessional, it could be 5, 10, 15, 20 years. It might even be until the point you die. You can never uh, stop doing penance for something uh, uh, in this life until you die, then you go on to your reward. Now, as we see and as we've talked about, that situation uh, inflicts uh, uh, the greatest distress and disgrace to the mind of the individual, right? What What is worse for the person who wants to be a follower of God and strives to be a follower of God, what's worse than never being able to reach that point where God can forgive you? We've been fighting for years with this concept of God can't forgive me, I've done too many terrible things. You know, there are people in the world who believe that. And uh, it weighs on their minds and it is distressing. Uh, you go through that whole process of being humiliated before someone, even concerning private sins, and you can't seem to be forgiven. It all has to do with keeping power and control over the people. And so this idea of indulgences was, uh, was born. 
Now, over time, those who demonstrated uh, undoubted sorrow were relieved of their sins. Uh, earlier than the old way demanded as this indulgence began, but, but here's the question I think maybe we ought to ask. Who determines if someone is truly penitent? God does, doesn't He? The individual, Paul, Paul told those in Corinth, 2 Corinthians, uh, he said, examine yourselves. You know whether you're in the faith or not. And so that's between God and the individual, right? Uh, we often talk about people, uh, you know, maybe they come to, uh, they move to a new area and they want to place a membership at a particular congregation and uh, the elders get together and they begin to question them a little bit, which is the right thing to do. Uh, ask them about their marriage or, or whatever. And someone says, well, I've been married before, but I, I am divorced and remarried according to Matthew 19, verse 9. So what do we do? Do we send out the private investigators? No. We take them at their word, right? We've done our due diligence. They know whether they're right with God. We've done what we know is right. Obviously, outside of the realm of it being very public knowledge that someone's been married several times or even just one more time and, and, and the situation is known that that person was not the innocent party. And, uh, you know, now that's a, that's a whole other scenario, right? But we do, do due diligence and it's up to God to determine whether a person is penitent, sorrowful for what they've done or not. It's not up to the Pope. It's not up to the Catholic priest, right? Um, now, the abridgment of the long sentence was called an indulgence. Instead of having to pay penance for 15 years, you abridge that, you make it smaller or shorter, and how do you get to that point? How do you, how do you cause that to happen? Through an indulgence. You purchase... And indulgence. Now, uh, that idea of being able to purchase salvation came to its pinnacle under Leo the Tenth. Okay, Leo the Tenth, and he had a right hand man called Tetzel, and he was the fellow who preached about the indulgences, who pushed the indulgences, who went out and commissioned people to collect indulgences. And so it reached its zenith under that particular pope. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, it was in Germany where Tetzel did most of his work. Now, let's kind of understand what an indulgence is. Someone commits a sin and they have to pay penance. They have to suffer. They have to be punished for however long. Okay, well, the opportunity comes up and says, well, if you can suffer in this way, it'll shorten your, your time down. Or you can pay money forward and buy this indulgence and shorten your time down. Now, exactly where is it that we, uh, we read about that in the Bible? Never mentioned. Nothing of the sort has ever been mentioned. Now, in the beginning... 
indulgences were limited exclusively to church penances. But over time, they began to embrace all manner of temporary punishments owed the soul in this earth and purgatory. Now, what's purgatory? Purgatory is this non-existent place where the Catholic Church teaches that the soul, the spirit of man, goes to this place so they can pay out this penance, they can suffer for the wrongs done in this life before they get to heaven. So, not only is it a second chance after life is over, but it's a process of having to continually suffer and pay out this penance for a period of time before we get to heaven. Again, how did we come up with that? I don't know. It's not in the Bible. I guess we have to ask the hierarchy of the Catholic Church. Now, how, how did they come to uh, uh, this understanding? What, on what are they basing this idea of indulgence? Well, they base it on Christ. It was taught that Christ had endured and removed the eternal penalties of sin. But the sufferings, short of this everlasting continuance of penance, must be born in purgatory. So, he, he got rid of the long eternal uh, punishment of hell, but in the meantime, the shorter uh, punishments that uh, need, to, need to take place, the person takes care of those while they're suffering in purgatory. Now, when we think of uh, places where humanity reside, okay, uh, the, uh, the eternal part of all beings, you have uh, outside of this life, you have the Hayden realm, right? You have the place that Paul called paradise. Its counterpart, torments, Jesus talked about when uh, discussing the rich man Lazarus. So that is what Paul called the third heaven. The first and second heaven obviously have to do with this physical life. But then you have the third heaven, and then you have the abode uh, of uh, those who will be in heaven eternally. That's the That's the fourth heaven. Where does purgatory fit in there? It has to be a spirit realm, right? But Paul never mentioned it. In fact, Jesus, in his uh, telling of the account of the rich man and Lazarus, what did he say about people who would leave torments? He said, there's this great gulf fixed. People who would leave torments to come to paradise can't do it. Those who would leave paradise to go to torments, not that anyone would want to do that, but that's not possible either, right? And so Jesus or Paul, neither one ever mentioned this idea of purgatory. But purgatory is where you have to go for a little while to take care of some of the problems that you caused or the sins in which you you involved yourself in this life. That's where you go to take care of that. Now, uh you can do that through suffering in purgatory. You can take care of those sins by going on pilgrimages. You know, take a pilgrimage to the to the Holy Land or to uh, uh, wherever the Pope may be at that time. You know, for a period of time in the Catholic Church, there was there was more than one Pope. 
Or you can take care of all of that through this idea of purchasing and indulgence. Well, what's the best way? What's the easiest way? What's the, the most attractive way? Let's gather up some money and pay the Pope. We don't have to worry about going to purgatory. We don't have to worry about suffering. We don't have to worry about going on a long trip, a pilgrimage somewhere to the Holy Land or, or wherever that may be. We don't have to worry about any of that. And so then it became very attractive to participate in this idea of uh, indulgences. Now, what if you didn't necessarily have enough money uh, to buy an indulgence, but you still didn't want to have to suffer in purgatory? You still didn't want to have to go on a pilgrimage. Well, you could hire a deputy for a lot cheaper than buying an indulgence for him to suffer for you. Now, there were there was a, an order of monks who participated in that, and they were the, kind of the go-to people if you wanted to get someone to stand in for you and be punished. Now, at what point do you just throw your hands up and say, this is really getting ridiculous? You know, maybe we've already passed that point. But <clears throat> at any rate, uh, they could, uh, uh, those penances could be uh, discharged by substitute. And there were, were hordes of monks who competed to be able to do that. That's how they made their living. Pay me a little bit. I'll suffer for you, right? What does all this have in common with just any denominational doctrine? It's all materialistic, isn't it? It's all materialistic. You have the monks. They want to make a little money. You have the people who they don't want to worry about life after this life, right? They like living the way they like to live in this world. So we'll pay forward and we'll, we'll take advantage of these indulgences. It's all materialistic. And, uh, you know, this was, uh, uh, one of the, the darkest periods and techniques that the papal system incorporated. Now, when does it stop? When does it say, okay, we've come this far. Let's not go any further with our evolution of what these doctrines are. Never stops, does it? It never stops. Following the institution of what uh, they call uh, indulgences, it involved into the sin of supererogation. That's a big long word. And supererogation means... Uh, the performance of more work or duty than required. Okay, so what about this? A man performs his allotted tasks for penance, but he goes beyond that. He's building up points. Okay, he's building up points. So later on, something happens. He's already built up enough uh, penance that he doesn't have to worry about it. Well, what if that person dies? He still has points. Are we going to waste them? What about the person who suffered in this life beyond what he should have suffered? 
And he's got all these points in the bank. So now what do we do? Well, they're not going to to lose that. And so it was claimed that millions of saints in heaven had left a legacy of such merits. They had suffered in this life beyond what they should have suffered. They might have even led a blameless life and still suffered. So the bank account's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So all these merits are laying around. And uh, so the church all of a sudden decided, well, we have a treasury of good deeds. So what do you do? You sell them. Someone comes along, they don't want to do penance. Well, that's a problem to begin with, isn't it? If you sin, you have to be penitent. They don't want to go on a pilgrimage. I have the means by which to purchase the indulgence instead of getting someone to stand in for me. And so, you got all these merits laying around, let's buy them. And so that's put on your account, right? And um, uh, that was paid up capital in the bank of indulgences. And so, you know, that made that was good for everybody involved, right? That was the person who, who didn't really want to pay for sin, still wanted to live however they wanted to live, plus the Pope was making money. And uh, uh, during the 15th century, the selling of indulgences really became common practice and was part of just the system of the Catholic Church. Any comments? Yeah. Sure, sure. You, you, you just went. You didn't have to. Uh, you didn't have to get off. It was a direct route, and uh, if you had the means, you could you could take care of your sin in this life. Boy, isn't that right? People do have a great imagination. God's way is much simpler, isn't it? Uh, you have to have more faith to believe in something like that than to believe in the God of the Bible. You know, and it's just from this materialistic mindset that, uh, you know, people want to have what they want in this world, live however they want to live, and have a clear conscience for the next one, right? We're going to notice in, in a little while... Uh, when we move out of uh, out of this aspect into the Reformation, you know we're we're talking about the falling away. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they rent it for a period of time, and yeah, uh, Maria mentioned in, in in New Orleans she was on a on a tour, and and uh, there's a lot of wonderful, beautiful arch, uh, architecture in New Orleans, and the the, the churches and the and the cemeteries, and they're all above ground. They're 
they don't put anybody in the ground. It's too close to the to the water table. And uh, once you once you rent a spot in one of the uh, tombs, you continually have to pay for that. You quit paying, you're out. I don't know what they do with you, but you're out. Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Yeah, and so you know, it's it's just it's just ridiculous, brother Ron. Uh, you don't hear so much about indulgences anymore. Uh, it's not anything like it is. I'm not sure whether they incorporate part of it now or not, but it's certainly the the idea of the indulgence is uh, really led toward kind of the straw that broke the camel's back when we went from the falling away to the Reformation movement. So whether they're they're not actively doing it as they were in the 15th century, but whether or not they still participate in it, I'm not sure about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, and Sam mentions, and, and worldwide they still do penance, and a lot of it's physical. And, you know, you've seen on uh, uh, different, you know, whether it be a, a National Geographic channel or just on the news, and Sam, when he was in Spain, saw some of this, uh, people punishing themselves to make penance in this life. So we know that they still use the confessional. They still have this idea of penance. Uh, whether it's to the extreme as it once was, you know, I'm not sure. But I'm not I'm not real certain about level of indulgences because it was really a big problem for the Catholic Church when they when the indulgence reached its apex and uh, people finally began to say this this isn't right this is not making sense right and it was one of the things that caused this you know you go from one extreme to the other usually if you're if you're anti normally that person will swing all the way over to the liberal side and vice versa. And so you had the the idea of the Catholic Church where you're working your way to heaven, right? And then when um, uh, uh, the Reformation Fathers came along, that's when they got rid of the idea of godly works in addition to your faith. Martin Luther took James out of his Bible and made it kind of an appendix in the back because you have to have uh, you have to have works right and so he didn't he was so opposed to what the Catholic Church had been doing that he went way to the other extreme and so you know they still have these problems today in this in this uh, denomination you know it's uh, the first or, or second largest religious denomination in the world you have the catholic church you have islam right both of them have about a billion adherents 
I'm not sure what the, what the latest number is, but it is absolutely blowing up and still blowing up throughout the world. But there's a lot of attractive uh, points to Catholicism, to the person who doesn't really want to search and dig and find out what God wants. Any other comments? Questions? Now, during the 15th century, again, this became a very common practice. And so what they would do is they would get together and they would make an announcement and the archbishop was going to show up at a particular location and they would usually make it some sort of a religious pretense because, you know, you still had to have this air of religion about it. And then they would simply start selling these indulgences. Now, Pope John uh, the 23rd gave his representatives. And now again, we're seeing the change. You go from the priest absolving your sins to whoever the Pope's representative was to collect these indulgences. Could be anybody, right? So they collect the indulgence. They then in turn absolve the buyer from the sin. Okay, so it just keeps going on and keeps going on. And uh, uh, the, the sum of money required had to fit the crime. Okay, if you did something that, eh, you know, wasn't too bad, you didn't have to pay as much money. If you did something that was really bad, you had to pay more money. Now, that brings up this idea here. What sin will not keep you out of heaven? Will a lie keep you out of heaven? Will murder keep you out of heaven? Any sin that is unforgiven will keep you out of heaven. So who's deciding the sum of money? Well, it's some person. Okay, well, you you told a little white lie. Okay? Only because you needed to. Well, it wasn't because you really wanted to, but it just the situation called for it. So you pay X amount of dollars. Now, you stole something. But that's still not as bad because, you know, you didn't feel like going to work that day. You still need to feed your family. But now if you murder someone, now we're in big money, right? And uh, uh, you're still going to have to pay the civil price for that. But we're looking at eternity. You want to get your get yourself in order. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> now, if you notice when uh, throughout history, People who have been sentenced to death, criminals, who do they always send for? To let them come and speak to them prior to going to execution. Whoever the religious leader is. And that sprang from this idea, right? Uh, what if, what if, uh, you know, what if I don't have the money? Well, maybe I have a family member who can pay that indulgence for me. And, I won't have to worry about it as I'm headed to the gallows or the electric chair, the gas chamber, the firing squad, or whatever the case may be. And so we can make these connections down through time. Now, uh, in his history of the Reformation, uh, 
Diabine wrote, When such indulgences were to be published, the selling of them were commonly farmed out because the church could not wait on its money. Okay, so they had a scheduled, uh, you know, time to set up market for indulgences. Well, the church needed some money. They couldn't wait on, you know, on their money. So what they would do, they would sell the uh, indulgence to someone who then would go out and collect the indulgence. So, you know, uh, we'll take 75% on the dollar. And then whatever you can make in addition to that, more power to you. You know, it's just like farming out a loan, right? Anyone ever borrowed money for a house and then you start out with this loan company, then all of a sudden they've sold that loan to somebody else. Okay? And they get their money, not not 100% of it, but they get a lot of it, and then the other business makes that whatever uh, is left over. So that was the business the Pope had going on. He had all the angles covered. And um, to maintain this religious aspect for the trafficking of these illicit gains, the Pope appointed the archbishops of the various provinces uh, as his commissaries. They would go out and they would announce when uh, indulgences were to be sold. Now, here's kind of the idea behind banking up indulgences. Jesus suffered and died on the cross and he gave his blood for humanity to have the opportunity to be saved. So, in the mind of the Pope, he states that one drop of Christ's blood is enough to to take care of all the sin in the world. So what are we going to do with all that leftover blood? All those drops of blood. We're going to we're going to sell access to it. You can't make enough debit out of that account. And uh, uh, their teaching was the mother Mary can't make enough debit out of those accounts to ever use it up. And so it was really the indulgence that brought about this idea of the Reformation movement and the changing of this uh, organization that had just simply gotten out of control. Any comments? Questions? All right. Uh, Let's move into this idea of the Reformation. You've got something that's a problem. And so what's the first thing you want to do? Let's see if we can fix it. Right. Uh, sometimes that can be the case, right? Sometimes you can take something that has gotten askew a little bit and you can get it back on track. But the Roman Catholic Church had gotten so far off. And remember, the initial uh, beginnings of the Roman Catholic Church sprang from the church, Right? They were erring members of the Lord's church, okay? So the time to get them back on track was 1,500 years ago, right? And so maybe we've got beyond getting getting that uh, vehicle back on track. It might be time to get another vehicle, right, to do something with that one. And so uh, 
But it had gotten so far off track, it, it seems as if it couldn't have gone further, right? And at this time, the, the name of Jesus was proclaimed by most people. But you know what you couldn't find? Very difficult to find? It is very difficult to find someone who was a true and a devout believer, and there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, a lot of reasons for that. Uh, if you have control of an organization and you're feeding them lies, do you want them to get their hands on the truth? Well, that's the last thing you want to do, right? We want to keep them in the dark. We don't want them to, to be able to discover the light. If you want to keep someone in a dark room under your control, don't give them a flashlight to be able to look around find a way out, you know. So that, in essence, is what the Catholic Church was doing. Christ had been hidden away. He had been hidden away, and so the, quote, representative, his vicar on earth, could stand in, continue to usurp the authority of Christ, and be the all in all. He liked being the top guy, who had all the power and who had all the wealth. It all goes back to money and materialism. Okay? Uh, justification by faith. Absolutely discarded. Absolutely discarded. Uh, it was denounced, and it was denounced so they could have this open trade for indulgences. Uh The commandments of God were openly spurned. They were rejected. But how are you going to know if you don't have access to the material? See, that was very intelligent on their part as far as making sure their uh, organization continued just as it was going. Okay, But there were forces at work throughout Europe that were getting sick and tired and full of what the Pope was doing. And just like the Restoration Movement, we'll get to that, the Reformation Movement was happening in different pockets around Europe. Now, the first person who uh, uh, made a name for himself was John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe. Now, we're going to talk about some of these different names. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on them because we don't have that time. But we need to mention them and understand what they uh, lent to this Reformation movement. Now, there are some reasons why the, the, the people were getting a little tired of what was going on. You had the invention of the printing press. You had the movement of learning, gaining knowledge, coming out of of ignorance where, uh, and ignorance isn't a bad word, it's just simply a lack of knowledge. And then you had this concept of, I want to get a hold of a Bible. I want to read the Bible for myself. And all those things lent themselves for uh, toward the resistance of the people when it came to this iron-fisted rule of the Catholic Church. Now, why do we study the Reformation? Why don't we go from the falling away to the to the restoration because the Reformation movement brought about Protestantism, Protestantism, uh, multitudes of false religions. Well, I think we owe these men a debt of gratitude simply by trying to move in the right direction, grabbing the attention of the world, saying this is wrong. Now, 
did they do did they go far enough no they didn't go far enough they were trying to break something or, or fix something that was broken that was irreparable okay but at least they were moving in that correct direction of changing what was going on and that's what they wanted and that's what needed to happen so John Wycliffe lived in the 14th century okay uh, he was uh, popularly called the morning star of the Reformation movement. He kind of got it going, okay? And uh, he was the first to distinguish himself as someone who fought against the papacy. He began to point out some things. He wrote prolifically, and he wasn't afraid, and he stood up, and he spoke out against the Catholic Church. He was uh, an English scholastic philosopher, he was a theologian, he was a biblical translator, he was a, a reformer, a priest, and he was a seminary professor at the University of Oxford. Now, his eyes were opened to the misuses and the wickedness of the Catholic Church, and he determined he was going to do something about it. Of all the things he did, the greatest thing he ever did to help enlighten the world to the uh, criminal actions of the Catholic Church was he translated the Bible from Latin to English. Holy against the law. That is not what the Catholic Church wanted. They were not interested in allowing the Bible to be placed in the hands of the common people. Now, we're going to close on this. To fully appreciate the difficult task that he undertook, we have to understand what was going on at the time. Through laws uh, enacted 150 years before Wycliffe came along, they made it illegal to translate the Bible in whole or in part in any vernacular tongue, in any common language. Uh, they did not want the Bible to protect it to be written in the barbarian tongues. Okay? Well, that sounds good, I guess, if if you're those people, but, uh, you know, that was simply a cover. Now, in addition to, and this is how bad the Catholic Church is, uh, was at that time for sure, uh, when that law was enacted, they also enacted the idea of the Inquisition during that same uh, when those canons were, were put into law. Now, an inquisition was the institution of, or several institutions of groups of archbishops or leaders of the Catholic Church, and they were enacted with the power to hunt out heretics. Now, most commonly, we are aware and hear about the Spanish Inquisition, right? Uh, that targeted Jews and Muslims, okay? So the Inquisition would go out, they would uh, uh, put on trial people they deemed to be heretics. And over a course of a uh, two three hundred year period, uh, at least a thousand people were murdered. Now here's how we can identify with what the Inquisition was. It was very similar to the witch trials that took place in Europe and in America, where they would gather up witnesses and, and accuse someone of being a witch, so with the Inquisitions, and you had them in Portugal, you had them in France, and they began in France in the 1200s. Uh, they were all over the world, and it was designed solely 
to put down opposition and dissent to the Catholic Church. And that was one of the big things that the Catholic Church did. And John Wycliffe, and we owe him a a debt of thanks, for translating the Bible and putting it in the hands of the common people. Any comments before we close? All right, thank you so much.